15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 213. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always is astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Morning, Andrew. How are you doing? (laughs) I am well. You have set a cat amongst the pigeons, my friend, or more to the point, a rooster amongst the hen house, uh, given that um, our good friend Gregory Peck made um, an impromptu appearance on the show last week, and uh, people are loving him. (laughs) Well, he's lurking around outside, so there there might be more of Gregory today. I I, I don't know. He's he's deafening from where I sit, I can tell you. um, We almost need earplugs when he really gets worked up uh hopefully well there are demands for photographic evidence so <laughs> well i've talked to his agent and she's going to talk i think our people are going to talk to your people <laughs> we'll see <laughs> if we can provide that there is even talk of t-shirts i know i've heard that uh, I, yeah, someone actually brought that up as um, it could become the new logo <laughs> space rooster space who knows He's yes a- and i understand he is a very sorry. Handsome, I have to say, he's a very handsome rooster. So he'll he'll, he'll do very well when he you know when he appears on t-shirts. I'm sure. Okay, can't wait. All right. Well, uh, if we do manage to um, do some kind of photographic deal, we will certainly post that photo on the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook for those who have requested such. Uh, I understand you have a, a new addition to the family as well. Yes, we sadly, as you know, we sadly lost uh, our beloved cat, Mandu. Um, but um, there is a, 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 a fairly large, I have to say, it's probably a year old kitten that now frolics around the place, whose name is Muscat. Uh, it's, you know, it's just uh, part, of the, part of the deal. It's, it's because Marnie's business, of course, was travel. And these are all destinations that she's taken groups to and things like that. We were in Muscat last year, in fact. Um, but anyway, Muscat is, um, is, is not, it's certainly not a Mandu, but he does have a, a character of his own. He's, he's, I'm sure you sure. Yes. Well, if he makes any impromptu appearances, uh, he will be most welcome. <laughs> yeah. He's fast asleep next to me at the moment. Does a lot of sleep. Yeah, that, that won't last. Teenage behaviour, that's what it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, on today's edition of Space Nuts, we're going to uh, discuss the launch of NASA's uh, mission to Mars. Now, it's due to leave Thursday US time, which uh, will be past tense by the time this uh, particular podcast is out your take uh, and weather permitting. But uh, we do want to talk about that upcoming mission. Uh, And we want to talk about the RAVE project. Uh, Now, this is a project uh, where Fred um, may have a a bit of an inkling as to what uh, what goes on because he was the project scientist. So one would hope. But um, stranger things have happened. Politics is a good example. Anyway, uh, we we uh, will look at the Rave project. I think um, uh, it's it's focusing on movement of stars, if I'm not uh, incorrect, which is not uncommon, is it? Anyway, and uh, audience questions uh, from Martin in Austria and Paddy in Sydney uh, about uh, the International Space Station, space junk, and creating a magnetic field to protect astronauts from radiation. All those sorts of things are going to be discussed 
today on the Space Nuts podcast. Now, Fred, let us begin with this uh, 2020 Perseverance mission to Mars, which uh, by the time this podcast is released will hopefully have begun. We hope so. That's right. The uh, So the uh, as, as you know, we've talked about this before, Andrew. Of course, there's a there's a window for launch, uh, um, and that window is uh, it started about a, a, a couple of weeks ago and extends into August. Uh, the United Arab Emirates and the Chinese have already taken advantage of this window, uh, which gets you to Mars with uh, minimum energy orbits. That's the, the whole point of it. Um, so. The um, Perseverance rover is the last of the trio. We we have uh, a launch window that begins actually uh, on uh, Thursday, the 30th of July. And as, as far as I know, um, NASA is still go for launch at that uh, earliest opportunity. It's 4.50 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time on the 30th of July. Uh, that makes it, um, if I did my calculations correctly, uh, sort of eight o'clock in the evening uh, here in uh, Eastern Australia. So we hope uh, all will be well. Uh, uh, as, as things stand now, we're, uh, we're one day, 12 hours, 33 minutes and 30, 30 seconds into the countdown. Uh, or, or that is the countdown. Uh, it's counting down. And we hope um, to, be, to bring good news uh, in the next edition of Space Nuts. But I thought it would be worthwhile just reminding all our esteemed listeners uh, what this is about. The spacecraft is uh, a, a, a rover of, uh, I, I guess, a, a similar design to Curiosity. Uh, obviously, these things evolve from one step to another, but um, the, it's certainly true that when you look at Perseverance, it owes a lot to the, the design of Curiosity. Six wheels, uh, weighs approximately a tonne. Um, it's uh, powered by um, the traditional... RTG, radio isotope thermoelectric generator, little uh, boxes of plutonium. They sit on the back of the uh, of the spacecraft, and then there's the mast with the cameras on top. Uh, there's a whole lot of apparatus on the robotic arm, which is at the front of the of the vehicle. Um, and uh, uniquely, uh, as you and I have spoken about before. It carries a helicopter, which is powered yeah. by a solar panel, the helicopter called Ingenuity. Helicopter weighs about two kilograms. It's not a, you know, it's not a, a flimsy thing. This is a fairly solid device. Um, one little factoid that uh, we didn't discuss when we talked about Ingenuity, the helicopter, a little while ago, is that its four carbon fiber blades will spin at 2,400 RPM. That's a huge speed. Um, and I guess that's necessary uh, in order to bite into Mars's rarefied atmosphere, uh, less than 1% yes. of, the, of the atmospheric pressure that we have here on Earth. Mm. And from what I've read about uh, Ingenuity is that it's going to pave the way for um, future exploration of Mars. It could well be the um, uh, the, the next phase of, uh, of uh, interplanetary exploration because helicopters will be able to go uh, to places that rovers cannot and they'll be able to get there faster. Exactly. So it could uh, it could be quite a, um, a momentous achievement if they, if they can uh, make it work. And I don't doubt that they will. I mean, yes, you 
you and I have talked about some of the uh, catastrophic failures of the past in terms of, uh, of certain probes um, missing the mark or hitting too hard, or and and those are the risks you take. But uh, you know, most most missions seem to to do um, do rather well, and uh, you know, launching a helicopter on another planet. I mean, who, who'd have thought about it uh, 20, 30 years ago? But now it's um, it's going to happen. Yeah. Fingers crossed, it's going to happen. Yeah. So exactly as you've said, the you know the, the the reason for the helicopter certainly in this case, and and it may they may be used for different things later on, but it, it's just to scout out the you know the terrain ahead of the ahead of the rover to look for uh, places of of interest of geological interest within r- the rover's range, uh, to look more especially for obstacles. You know, if, if the rover comes over the brow of a little hill and then finds that the way ahead is blocked by boulders or something of that sort, it, it would be nice to know about that before you bother to drive up the hill. Uh, and so that's what the Ingenuity helicopter will be used for. I'm really looking forward to seeing what kind of you know, what kind of imagery we get from it, what sort of uh, performance it, it has. And just a f- a final two final points on this. Of course, the whole point of perseverance is the idea of looking for signs of past or present life on Mars. That's why it has its drill to try and extract core samples and things of that sort. Uh, and, and also... Um, uh, I forgot what the other thing was I was going to tell you. Probably probably that it, it, it's due to land around about February next year. Um, I was going to ask you how long this journey will take. It is a long trip to Mars, isn't it? It's quite a way, that's right. But, uh, yep, all, 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 all systems are go at the moment. As far as I know, everything is on track, as I believe it is with the, the two other spacecraft that are already on their way to Mars. Yeah, if you're going to take the kids to Mars, make sure you've stocked up on those um, uh, in-car entertainment DVDs or uh, or uh, iPad downloads because it's g- they're going to get bored real quick. Are we there yet? <laughs> uh, I think will happen many, many times. Um, but uh, it, uh, the other thing is the uh, the landing point, which you and I have mentioned. Uh, they've chosen, I, I believe, a river delta area. Yes, that's right. Jezero Crater is the name of the location. And it does. It's got a river delta uh, there. So the, there was at one stage in Mars's history uh, flowing water over this shallow region within this crater. And um, it, it's thought that river deltas uh, are very efficient places for the dumping into the terrain of uh, any kind of biological material. Um, River deltas on Earth are very rich in in biological material that's carried down by the river. So the hope is that there might be evidence in that region of perhaps past life. You never know. There might might be signs of of metabolic activity there now, but past life, I guess, is what what is the focus. Uh, One other thing just about perseverance is that uh, it will gather samples as well. Uh, which are intended then in a future Mars mission to be brought back to Earth for analysis. So it's yeah. the kind of part one of something even more ambitious. And the other thing they're doing, which um, sort of hasn't really uh, been raised too much in the media, although I spotted it the other day and I had to mention it on the radio, is they're taking back a rock from <laughs> Mars that uh, landed on Earth 600,000 years ago. Um, one of the Martian meteorites, that's right, of which there are about yeah. 300 known, I think. Uh, yeah, it's been taken back as a, as a sort of calibration sample for their, 
for their experiments. Fabulous stuff. Uh, imagine yeah. that meteorite that came from Mars being taken back there to, to, to be left on the surface. Yes. And they'll probably go, what are we supposed to do with this? We got rid of that ages ago. We don't want it. Oh, Take it back. Look what's come back. Oh, my gosh. We've got, we've got plenty of them. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, very exciting. And uh, with three missions bound for Mars, uh, there'll be a lot to talk about, well, next year, basically, when all of this starts to unfold, I imagine. Yeah, we'll have to change the podcast to Mars Nuts, Andrew, rather than just Space Nuts. <laughs> yeah, maybe. We'll do a special Mars Nuts edition for right. three months or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> While all the data comes out. Yeah. Mm. All right. We watch with interest and um, hopefully by the time you hear this, that mission will be um, uh, nominal and uh, headed for Mars. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, i've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that i wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why i do need a vpn at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and King with a go. Space Nuts. Once again, just uh, saying hello and thank you to our social media followers, whether it's on Facebook through the uh, official Space Nuts Facebook page or the Space Nuts podcast group. Uh, we are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We are on YouTube. And if you are interested in downloading the podcast via YouTube, uh, we're looking to get our uh, monthly download figures to around 4,000. And uh, or you can listen on your favourite podcast distributor. But uh, social media seems to be uh, a, a place where we gather a lot of uh, followers 
And uh, particularly with the Space Nuts podcast group, it's a, it's a good avenue for you to talk to each other. And I, I notice it's a very, very busy group indeed. And I occasionally poke my head in and uh, have a look around and, and see what everyone's talking about. But um, whatever platform you listen to us on, thank you for supporting the Space Nuts podcast. And you uh, can also show um, that support through uh, Patreon or uh, one of the other the platforms where we um, uh, give you the opportunity to contribute to the show financially uh, through uh, Patreon, Supercast or Acast, and it can be for as little as $3 a month. It's purely voluntary, but, um, yeah, we're getting more and more people sign up uh, with that option uh, every week. So we thank you for supporting. And, of course, as a, as a um, financial contributor uh, or as a, as a patron, uh, you do get uh, a few extra benefits, including bonus material, which will pop up on whatever platform you follow us on, uh, which um, I hope um, you're finding most enjoyable. We're certainly having fun putting it together. Now, let's um, have a bit of a rave uh, with Fred, who um, is uh, w- wanting to talk about the, uh, the, the latest information from the radial velocity experiment, otherwise known as RAVE. Fred, you're pretty close to this one. Indeed, yeah. I wasn't actually um, the project scientist. That was the role of one of my colleagues in the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia. His name is Tomasz Svita. Um, my job was to be the project manager. So it's uh, so RAVE was actually quite a large uh, consortium of something like 60 scientists uh, from 20 institutions internationally, many of them um, located in Europe. In fact, it was led by, uh, and, and I suppose technically still is, although I'll get to that in a minute, it's led by um, Professor Dr. Matthias Steinmetz, who is um, the head of um, astrophysics at the Leibniz Institute for Astrophysics in Potsdam in Germany. So uh, Matthias, uh, Tomasz and myself were the three, what you might call, managers of this project, but there was also a uh, a board, an executive board, which we're all members of, and then the, the consortium itself, as I said, 60 scientists. So what is it? Uh, it is um, a project which had its inception back in 2003. I remember a meeting uh, on a chilly morning in Cambridge, uh, UK, uh, where we discussed the possibility of using the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope uh, at Siding Spring Observatory here in Australia, uh, and was equipped then with a with a robotic fibre optics machine called 60F. That stands for six degree field, the field of view of the telescope, uh, which would allow you to gather um, information on the velocities of stars, accurate velocities for stars. And um, this proposal was actually um, on the back of a a spacecraft that was being planned. Uh, now, I can't remember. I think it might have been FAME, the spacecraft, that was uh, being proposed by the German Space Agency. And the idea was that the spacecraft would uh, would make measurements of the, the velocities of these stars across the line of sight, and we would then, from the ground, do the equivalent but along the line of sight. And if you can combine those, you get uh, what, what's called uh, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the true velocity of the star. So um, mm. 
the, the whole idea of this radial velocity experiment, and radial velocity is just a velocity of a star along the line of sight, was to build a database of stars using the Schmidt telescope. Uh, and indeed, it got kicked off. It went through all kinds of tribulations in its early days, but it started. Uh, we started pilot observations in 2003. In 2005, uh, the RAVE project became the only project that the UK Schmidt Telescope was undertaking. So it was undertaking it th throughout the whole year rather than just on selected dates each month. Um, and the project grew. Um, so uh, it, it actually grew in many ways. That you know, The initial idea was to gather velocities of stars. And I might just add... Um, you, you know, I've got a vested interest in this, but I'm not boasting about it from any personal point of view. But we did great things, there's no doubt. When we started, <clears throat> the total knowledge uh, of the total sum of stellar star radial velocities was about 20,000 that had been gathered for the previous 150 years. And within the first year, we had, I think, more than doubled that. We'd gone to 40 or 50,000. I can't actually remember the number. But it, it became quite obvious that this was a very effective way of improving our knowledge of the, 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 the velocities, the motions of stars in the sun's neighbourhood in, in our galaxy. And that's why the project then kind of took off. Uh, and basically, we observed for... Around about 10 years, uh, it was the uh, the final observations were made by somebody called Fred Watson on, the, on I think it was the 4th of April 2013. It was in the wake of the uh, of the Wombolong fire that nearly took out the, the observatory. Um, I did some, I think I did four nights of observations in the April of that year just to prove that it wasn't the fire that brought the project to an end. In fact, we essentially ran out of funding. However, uh, in that 10 years, we measured 518,387 spectra, that means the data points, for 451,783 stars. There you go. <laughs> um, that's, that's the final number. So, as I said, the observation stopped in 2013. Uh, seven years later, what is happening is the final, um, basically the final uh, catalogue of all these data has been released. In fact, it was released last uh, actually, end of last, uh, a big part, no, it was, it was last week, 27th of July. 27th of July, 2020, that was when we um, released what was what's called DR6, the sixth data release uh, of the RAVE catalogue. Um, and it's the sort of final product. This is the end product of what the uh, survey has been all about. And I'll shut up for a minute so you can ask a question. But when I, when I start again, I might just give you some hints in, into what has been discovered from that, Andrew. Well, that's, that was going to be my question, because you, you've done all this work over such a long period of time. And uh, I, I'm sure that you've been able to, to crunch the data and, and uh, come up with, with some revelations. And uh, I, I'm just looking at um, some of the information that's been released. And, uh, you know, they're talking about things like how uh, fast a star has to be moving to escape gravitational pull. Um, but I, I'm quite intrigued by the results confirming that dark matter uh, dominates the mass of our galaxy. I mean, it's, it's something we don't know much about, but you've, uh, you've been able to confirm that it is a dominant force in, in the universe. Yeah, that's right, and certainly in our own galaxy. So what, what you're doing is you're, you're using the speeds of stars 
to essentially reveal something about the gravitational field in which they're moving. That's that's basically how you, you, you know, it's one of the ways that you can tell what sort of gravitational pull stars are feeling. Uh, and sure enough, we get this same result that most of the mass of our galaxy is in, is in dark matter. Uh, that other result you mentioned, uh, it, it pl plays into the same idea, in fact, because uh, the idea of uh, determining the minimum speed needed for a star to escape the gravitational pull of the Milky Way. It's actually one of the first papers that was produced from RAVE back in about 2004, very early result. Um, what's called the escape velocity of the galaxy, that gives you a, a mass of the galaxy. But of course, that mass includes not just the stars you can see, but also the dark matter. Uh, and, and in more detail, RAVE has shown um, that the the disk of our Milky Way is um, is wobbling slightly because of the satellite galaxies, like the two Magellanic clouds. The, the way they are interacting with our galaxy, it sort of has wobbles in it. Um, and we've also found streams of stars, which are probably the remnants of, of dwarf galaxies that, that have been pulled apart. Um, the, uh, the the first one that was found. Uh, it's probably back in about 2006 or thereabouts, was something called the Aquarius Stream. It was the dawning of the stream of Aquarius that was uh, the title of the paper, I think. So th th that's, you know, dwarf galaxies that have been ripped apart. They, they have merged with the Milky Way, but we still see their evidence in the movement of the stars. So it was a pretty neat uh, project, I have to say. And uh, let me say that I am very honoured to have played a part in it. Uh, my role was essentially supervising all the observations. It was a team of half a dozen of us who did the observing. I was managing that group as the astronomer in charge of the observatory, uh, but also as the as the RAVE project scientist, a project manager, I beg your pardon. I spent a lot of time worrying about budgets and where money was coming from. I spent a lot of time uh, worrying about the fact that the fibres in our fibre optic machine kept breaking and oh, all sorts of stuff. It's why, uh, Andrew, I've got no hair left virtually, uh, that Rave puts a big load on my shoulders. But honestly, it was worth every, uh, every lost hair of it uh, because well over 100 uh, top-class scientific articles have come from the the Rafe project, uh, and that you know that's just a brilliant output. So yes, it's kind of RIP Rafe because this sixth data release really represents the end of the project uh, and the fact that uh, those data are now public. Any of our listeners could go and access them. You've got to go and find them uh, at the uh, uh, Institute for Astrophysics in Potsdam on their website, but it's pretty easy to do if you just uh, Google Rave and it'll take you straight there or to some party or other that might have the same name. And I suppose, Fred, uh, with all the information you've collated and released, it may well pave the way for future studies and, and um, we may, through other avenues, learn a heck of a lot more about stars and, and maybe even dark matter. In fact, those studies are already underway, Andrew. You there you go. Right. Yeah, so uh, a similar survey, but in a little bit more detail, because it's a bigger telescope, that's going on with the Anglo-Australian telescope, the 3.9-metre telescope at Siding Spring. That's called Galar. Uh, Galar is galactic archaeology with Hermes, and Hermes is a is another of these fibre-optic spectrographs, but uh, working in a different way. But the, the one thing that really has, I think... Um, uh, 
sort of shone the way ahead and actually um, has has allowed rave data to be used in a completely new way. That is the Gaia spacecraft. Gaia is, a, is an ESA spacecraft which is measuring the positions of stars with micro arc second accuracy. Um, and you can combine the data coming from that with the rave data to get really extraordinary detail on the way things are operating in our galaxy, not just the movement of stars in the galaxy, but their chemistry, uh, their temperatures, surface gravities, all of that stuff comes from this this combined uh, set of, of data. So it's really a really powerful tool. And and you also, um, as a part of it, looked tried to find some of the very, very first stars. I mean, that must have been um, interesting and difficult, I imagine. It is. It's, it's exciting stuff as well. So what you're looking for is stars that have got a very low metal content in their atmospheres, <clears throat> principally iron. Um, the, 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 the lower the amount of iron there is in, in the atmosphere of a star, the earlier it must have been born in the history of the universe because iron is enriched gradually throughout the history of the universe. So Rave had the potential to, to, uh, to find those. In fact, I think a couple of times uh, stars found with Rave were record holders for the earliest known star. That's a movable feast. It's like the most distant known object. It, it's something that, uh, you know, keeps changing as new technology comes along. Uh, but yes, it, it pointed to, to very early stars. Clues about the earliest epochs of star formation and the chemical evolution in the Milky Way, as the press release says. Indeed. Yeah, fantastic. Well, well done, Fred. Yes, yes. And it's good it's good that you could have a rave about rave. Well we had many you've of got them. To, <laughs> you've got to be able to blow your own trumpet occasionally. Yeah. And I mean that's that's what you do. I mean you 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 work in this arena and um I think people would be really keen to to hear about some of the, the direct influences and hands-on work you've done. So, uh, yeah, fantastic effort. Thanks very much. You are listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. As always, I would encourage you to visit our website where you can go shopping. We have a Space Nuts shop, we have a Space Nuts bookshop, and you can record your audio questions through the AMA tab on uh, the spacenutspodcast.com website. Uh, it's a very easy URL. Uh, you'll notice it'll change once you load it. That Just ignore that. It's, 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 it's an illusion. Spacenutspodcast.com is where you'll find our official Space Nuts webpage, and from there you can uh, have a look around, listen to all our episodes, uh, and uh, just uh, if you do want to ask an audio question, all you need is a device with a microphone plugged in, and you can most certainly uh, send in audio questions, but we'll still take them in text form. More than happy to do that if you um, uh, don't have the capacity to record or you're a bit embarrassed about your voice or you just don't want to. <laughs> There's all sorts of reasons. Uh, speaking of audio questions, Fred, let's uh, get stuck into some of these. Uh, we've got one from Martin, who is in Austria. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Fred. This is Martin from Austria. I have a question about the ISS. So I can observe it with the naked eye, but um, it, it varies quite a bit. Um, so my question is, why does it vary that much? Is it because of orbital adjustments the ISS has to do? If so, how do they do that and um, what are the things they have to bear in mind 
do they have to look out for space junk or satellites or other stuff um yeah it would be good if you could explain that and um yeah um been a fan and listener of your show for two years keep up the good work greet from austria bye there you go thank you martin great to hear from you and he's asked some interesting questions. I, I suppose, Fred, um, it's something we have touched on before because uh, in the not-too-distant past, they do, did have to actually move the ISS because of a potential collision with space junk, which is something Martin asked about. But uh, I suppose the first part of his question was about the variation in the observability of the ISS, which you can see with the naked eye, but sometimes it's more difficult than others. Why would that be? Yeah, so, yes, exactly. It's the brightness that's varying. Um, and actually, uh, part of what is the reason for that is exactly what Martin says, uh, because of the orbital adjustments. So uh, the International Space Station, it, its nominal altitude is about 400 kilometres, but uh, it can't just stay at that height if you don't do anything, because it's such a huge object with these gigantic solar panels uh, and, you know, acreage of real estate as well. Uh, it, it, it actually interacts with the, the, the very tenuous atmosphere there is even at that height. So if you don't do anything, it just gradually re, uh, reduces in altitude. And so what happens is exactly as Martin suggests, uh, there are orbital adjustments. What um, the mission controllers do is essentially they've got rockets, uh, station-keeping rockets, they're called. Basically, these are the thrusters that actually boost the uh, International Space Station to a higher orbit. Um, on the, If I remember rightly, on the Heavens Above website, I don't know whether it's still there, but it certainly used to be, Heavens hyphen above.com, I think is the URL, uh, that has a chart of the altitude of the International Space Station over time. And it's a kind of sawtooth uh, graph because the, you know, the thing gradually comes downwards and then they boost its orbit upwards slightly uh, to, to, to make the, you know, the sawtooth shape. Um, now, that is, they're probably changing the altitude by 50 kilometres or something like that, I can't remember the exact details, but that's enough to, uh, because of the geometry of the way we see it, the fact that we are seeing the space station illuminated by sunlight um, and, you know, that's, that that ten um, percent or twenty percent or whatever it is, uh, change in altitude is enough to change the brightness of the space station that we see. But I think the biggest uh, cause of variability is just its uh, you know the the attitude that the space station has as it transits across your field of view, because it is shining by reflection, and you can imagine uh, these enormous solar panels. Uh, they have they're not what you call specular reflections they're not acting like mirrors they're basically just scattering scattering the light uh, but depending on the exact orientation of the spacecraft as it flies overhead you're going to see some difference in the amount of light it's reflecting so it is quite variable exactly as martin says um, it's always pretty bright too it's certainly the brightest of all the artificial satellites around the earth uh, and um, I, I, I have to tell you, I always get a buzz when I see it going past. It's such a, you know, such an emotive thing that you know that 400 kilometres up there, there's an international crew of, of, of experts um, actually doing work in space. I think it's a fantastic thing.
Oh, it is, yeah. And 400 kilometres isn't really that far. I mean, you and I are almost that far apart. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, so when you think about it, that's that's not a, a great distance in the scheme of things. So uh, although from up there, the view, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I would love to, I would just love to go up there just to take a look at Earth from from that vantage point, I think. I, I don't even think photos do it justice. I think the... Um, uh, the naked eye, the human eye view from the International Space Station, especially if, if you were outside, would be just mind-blowing. I, I, I envy those people. I know they've worked hard to get there and, uh, you know, it's all business, but um, I, I don't think they'd get sick of it. Do you? I uh, no, I think they probably quite enjoy their job. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Mm. Now, uh, he also mentioned space junk, Yep. And space junk is a, an ongoing problem because there's just more and more of it uh, turning up out there. And with so many satellite launches happening um, at the present time, there's, there's the capacity for more space junk and uh, collisions are, um, are, are always a, a factor that we need to be aware of. Exactly. That's right. So, um, yes, as Martin said, do they have to look out for space, junks? Uh, space junk? They do. That's all done through mission control, the, uh, the, the thing, you know, things like the NORAD radi- radar. These are the, the facilities that actually allow us to track uh, debris down to about 100 millimetres across uh, in orbit. And as, as you said at the, the beginning there, Andrew, the, there are occasions probably two or three times a year when the orbit of the space station has to be adjusted slightly because there's a danger that it might come within um, a range of some piece of space junk that's you know that's in a similar orbit. Of course, the smaller stuff, stuff that's not able to be tracked, that's something you can't really guard against. That's why um, the space station itself is fairly solid. Uh, just one final thing: if if the uh, if the space station uh, is under threat from a piece of space debris, they would adjust the orbit to try and avoid it. But there is also um, uh, I, I know that astronauts have congregated in the in the Soyuz uh, escape modules uh, just to be safe if, uh, if mm-hmm. there is an encounter like that. Yeah, and yeah, you can never be too careful in space. It, uh, as I, as quoted by um, um, the character in The Martian, space does not cooperate. It's very unforgiving. That's right. Yes, yes, indeed. Very hostile environment as well. Martin, thank you for your questions. Uh, Very enlightening and glad we could uh, talk about some of those things. Let's move on to our next question from uh, Paddy in Sydney. Good morning, Fred and Andrew. Uh, It's Paddy from Sydney, uh, Rufa. I'm sorry to hear about Mandu, Fred. That's really sad news, mate. Um, Hey, I've got a question. I did asked this before but um, I thought I'd just do the audio. Anyway just with molten lead and molten um, metals or similar metals using them spinning them around boiling them up would that be a way to create a magnetic field to protect astronauts is it possible we can do that? Um, I did watch a documentary recently on how they were trying to do that but with a different metal with a really lower uh, melting point um, not sure if that's possible but um, if it could strong enough magnetic field to protect the astronauts uh, but yeah that's about it um, have a great weekend and uh, 
may the force be with you. <laughs> Thank you, Patty. Uh, nice to hear from you uh, in person. Uh, yes, Freddie's he's asked. He's a roofer. And he, he, I think, was the one that asked us about um, roof tiling on Mars, protecting astronauts. Mars, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so now the question is, uh, can we create magnetic fields to protect astronauts in space using molten metals? Uh, I, I do like Paddy's thinking because it's always about how we, you know, how we create an environment that will protect astronauts, uh, particularly uh, on Mars, but also heading to Mars. And I haven't actually heard of this idea of using uh, fluid metals to create the magnetic field. I mean, that's clearly how the Earth's magnetic field is is created by the sloshing around of of molten iron in the core. Um, I think... In practice, it is going to be down to uh, using much more conventional shielding uh, to to protect astronauts in deep space. Um, lead is, you know, lead is a pretty good way of stopping uh, the radiation from the sun penetrating inside a spacecraft to uh, to, to a- astronauts. But it's pretty lead is pretty unforgiving as well, just like space. And it's- uh, very heavy. So getting yeah. it up there would be a exactly. nightmare. Yeah. So I know that some of the designs that are being suggested uh, actually use water as the as the shielding. So you know maybe you 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 you've got a water tanker in orbit and you you, you send your spacecraft up there and then you fill up the tanks uh, to provide the shielding. Um, I haven't followed that in detail uh, and. Um, Paddy's suggestion is interesting. If you've got a low melting point metal uh, that was capable of generating a magnetic field, that would be a really interesting way to do it. But I haven't haven't really been following this, so um, I I shouldn't comment without actually looking at what results people are are suggesting there. But great thought. Um, Thank you. And I, I I will check up on that, Paddy. Yeah. What about mercury? Would that work? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I don't think mercury would work. I think it, uh, it, while it doesn't necessarily have to be a ferrous metal, I think it's got to have certain characteristics. Look, I'm, I'm guessing here, Andrew, and making this up as a call on, uh, but I will check up on it because it's such an interesting, an, an interesting thought. It is. How do they protect the astronauts on the ISS to bring, you know, today's two questions together? What, what, what are the protections there from radiation? Well, well, they don't really need it because they're within the, 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 the you know, the geomagnetic bubble that the Earth itself provides. Oh. The radiation. Okay. So levels. once you get outside of that and do a bit of a long-haul trip, yeah, you're right. starting to find yourself exposed. What about going to the moon? Are they exposed in that trip? Yes, they are. And um, what sort of helped in that regard uh, with the astronauts that you know the Apollo astronauts of course they were <clears throat> they're only in, in that environment for a week or so uh, uh, out of earth orbit um, and and all the basically the the risks were thought to be tractable for relatively short periods of exposure like that and I th- but I think the problem is when you are talking about a Mars flight then it's at least six months uh, and that's a very different kettle of fish from six or seven days uh, in the full radio, you know, radiation field of the sun. 
I, I'm starting to think the solution lies in the uh, alien conspirists who uh, wrap aluminium foil around their heads. I, I, I think that might be the go. Well, I've got that around my head all the time, Andrew. So sure, just to make sure, you know. Yeah, maybe. Mm. All right, uh, Paddy. Thanks for the question. You've you've got uh, Fred thinking, and he might have to do some homework to come up with something on that. But uh, yeah, it is a, it is really clever thinking uh, right outside the box. So uh, good on you, mate. Uh, good to hear from you too, um, Fred. I think that's just about it for another week. Uh, I, I'd, I'd certainly encourage people to uh, to send their questions in uh, via our website. Uh, always good to hear from you, or uh, whether it's in written form or verbal. So please do that. Uh, you can record via the AMA tab, which I mentioned earlier, at spacenutspodcast.com. Uh, thanks as always, Fred. Uh, another episode in the can, as they say in the industry. Indeed, that's right. And I'll um, <clears throat> I'll have to chase up Gregory because he's a bit silent today. I think he's across the paddock somewhere. So <laughs> we'll see what happens next time, Andrew. Thanks very Indeed. much. No, great pleasure. Thanks, Fred. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, uh, part of the team here on Space Nuts. And thank you for your company. Looking forward to catching up with you next time. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.